Let's get into Deuteronomy 7. Kind of cool that we've been preaching through Deuteronomy at the time when we go to the promised land and to get to see some of these things with our own eyes that we're reading about in Deuteronomy 7. And so I'm excited to get into this chapter. This is honestly one of, this is going to sound strange, but it's one of the passages I've most been looking forward to preaching. And the reason that's strange is because it's, it's probably the most difficult passage in the book of Deuteronomy, and you'll see why when we read together. Let's look at Deuteronomy chapter 7. I want to read verses 1 through 11, then I'll pray, and then we'll um, get into the message together. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 1. When the Lord your God brings you into the land you are entering to possess, and he drives out many nations before you, the Hethites, Girgashites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, seven nations more numerous and powerful than you. And when the Lord your God delivers them over to you and you defeat them, you must completely destroy them. Make no treaty with them and show them no mercy. You must not intermarry them with them. You must not give your daughters to their sons to take their daughters for your sons because they will turn your sons away from me to worship other gods. Then the Lord's anger will burn against you and he will swiftly destroy you. Instead, this is what you are to do to them. Tear down their altars, smash their sacred pillars, cut down their Asherah poles and burn their carved images. For you are a holy people belonging to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be his own possession out of all the peoples on the face of the earth. The Lord had his heart set on you and chose you, not because you were more numerous than all peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples, but because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your ancestors. He brought you out with a strong hand and redeemed you from the place of slavery from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps his gracious covenant loyalty for a thousand generations with those who love him and keep his commands. But he directly pays back and destroys those who hate him. He will not hesitate to pay back directly the one who hates him, so keep the command, the statutes, and ordinances that I am giving you to follow today. You pray with me. Father in heaven, you are a great, mighty, just, merciful God. You have ordained from before creation that you would save the nations through your Son, that Jesus would come and he would take our place on the cross, that he would be buried yet raised on, or yet rise on the third day and that we could find eternal life in him. And so as we come to Deuteronomy 7, and as you deal with your people, and as you give them the, the difficult command to wipe out the people who inhabit the land that you had promised to Abraham, give us wisdom, give us understanding, give us patience as we wrestle with your word. Give us minds that are engaged with what you're saying here today, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. This is a command to commit genocide. There's no other way to say it. This is a command to go in, 
to completely destroy the people who are living in the land that God had promised to Abraham. Men, women, and children are to be destroyed in the name of obedience to God. That's hard. <laughs> That's, that requires thoughtful reflection. Why would God do such a thing? Why would God send his people through whom he promised to bless the peoples of the earth, to bless the nations? Why would he send them to destroy the people living on this land? Why not convert them? Why not invite them into the promises of Israel? Well, God's got a plan. And as we want to consider this today, I want to first of all say we're going to, you'll see on the bottom of the, the front of the handout, there's a number that you can text questions to as we continue through Deuteronomy. Feel free at any time. If there's something that we don't cover or if there's something that you just want to hear more about or if there's something that's bothering you um, that you need clarification on, feel free to text any questions that you have to that. And what we're going to do is the pastors are going to sit down and we're going to record some sort of podcast-style conversations where we try to answer those questions. One of the questions that I want us to really take some time and, and answer that we're not going to take a ton of time for here on Sunday morning is this concept of God commanding the Israelites to destroy the nations. Uh, we we want to give this a lot more attention, and we're going to consider some of the responses that, that people have had to this. And so just know that we're going to go into much more detail about this. But for today, I want to make a simple point. And you'll see it on the handout. The first thing on the handout is this. God can be trusted to act justly. In a world that is so quick to accuse the God of the Bible of injustice or unrighteousness, I simply want to encourage you to remember who we're talking about. We are talking about the God of creation. We are talking about the God in whom there is nothing impure, in whom there is no injustice, in whom there is nothing evil. He can be trusted to act justly. And so if we start from that conviction, when we come to passages like Deuteronomy chapter 7, we can, we can step back and we can say, okay, what, what's being commanded here is offensive. What's being commanded here is difficult for modern ears to hear. But one thing I know is that God can be trusted to act justly. So whatever's going on here, it's just. Whatever's going on here, it's the right thing to do. God never commands his people to do the wrong thing. He can be trusted to act justly. Verse 2 says, And when the Lord your God delivers them over to you and you defeat them, you must completely destroy them. Make no treaty with them and show them no mercy. He's commanding holy war. Isn't that what we're supposed to be against? Aren't we supposed to be against wars in the name of religion? 
Aren't we supposed to be against killing? Yeah, of course. Unless God commands it. And in this instance, God commanded it. Now, it's important to note that this is not a general principle that God gives to the nation of Israel that they are to, at their whim, go out and destroy anybody that they want to destroy and to take their land. The command is specific to this time, to this land, and to these people. So, should Israel today, I mean, Israel is inhabited by a couple of million non-Jews, Palestinians, Arabs, and folks that live there. Should Israel today destroy those folks based on Deuteronomy 7? No. This was a specific command given to a specific group of people at a specific time. It's not a general principle. It's not as, as though God commands his people just to destroy anybody that gets in their way. And we see this, we see if we look at Deuteronomy chapter 9, if we jump ahead a couple of chapters, we see that this is not, this is not Israel asserting dominance over the people who are on the land. That instead, that God has a very specific purpose for this command. Verse 3 of Deuteronomy chapter 9 says, But understand that today the Lord your God will cross over ahead of you as a consuming fire. He will devastate and subdue them before you. You will drive them out and destroy them swiftly as the Lord has told you. When the Lord your God drives them out before you, do not say to yourself, the Lord brought me in to take possession of this land because of my righteousness. He specifically commands the Israelites, I'm not commanding you to do this because you are more righteous than the people that I'm commanding you to destroy. It's not because of your righteousness. Instead, verse four, second half of verse 4, the Lord will drive out these nations before you because of their wickedness. God is executing his just judgment on these seven nations that were named in Deuteronomy chapter 7. He is doing what is just. He, being a just God who does not tolerate injustice or wickedness or, 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 or sin against his commands and against humanity, is doing what is right. You say, wow, that's, that's some pretty difficult judgment, though. Well, then, I will get, get to this in a minute. Let me finish this passage. Verse 5 says, You are not going to take possession of the land because of your righteousness or your integrity. Instead, the Lord your God will drive out these nations before you because of their wickedness in order to fulfill the promise he swore to your ancestors Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Understand that the Lord your God is not giving this good land, giving you this good land to possess because of your righteousness, for you are a stiff-necked people. How many times in those few verses, like God's really piling it on. Like, don't think because I'm using you to carry out my judgment that I think you're better than them. It's not because of your righteousness, it's because of their wickedness and because of my promise, my covenant. He mentions the, the promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob 
Well, back in Genesis 15, God had promised Abraham that his, his descendants would possess this land. Yet he says to Abraham at that time, which is about 400 years prior to where we're at in Deuteronomy 7, he says, but not yet. Because the fullness of the wickedness of the Amorites, one of these seven nations, has not yet come to pass. God, is, God graciously gives them over 400 years to change their ways. When you study what was going on in this land and what these seven nations were like, they were extremely, extraordinarily wicked people. They were offering child sacrifices and doing all kinds of horrific things. And God gave them hundreds of years to change their ways. How long should God wait before he carries out his judgment on nations like that? 400 years? 4,000 years? 400,000? How long should he wait? In this instance, he waited 400 years. And he, he promised that to Abraham, that he would bring Abraham's descendants back to the land from a time of slavery and he would use them to carry out his just judgment against the people living on that land. God can be trusted to act justly. Okay, Like I said, we'll go into a lot more detail on that whole topic. Does God command holy war, and is it okay to kill in the name of God, and all that? We'll talk about all of that uh, in a podcast episode to come. But let's just leave it at that for now. If God can be trusted to act justly, let's move on to the second point you'll see on the handout. And that is that God chose Israel to be a conduit of his grace to the world. He chose Israel to be a conduit of his grace to the world. We'll look at verse 7. Let me give you a second to make sure you got those blanks filled in. In verse 7, it says, The Lord had his heart set on you and chose you, not because you were more numerous than all peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. By the way, that's another um, topic we're going to cover on the podcast, is how many Israelites were there, because there are at least two substantial views, different views on how many Israelites there were. Uh, we'll talk about that. Uh, but verse 8 says, But because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your ancestors, he brought you out with a strong hand and redeemed you from the place of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. When, one of the things that you'll see as Israel goes into the land is that God again and again emphasizes this point that it's not because of, not only is it not because of their righteousness, but it's not because of their strength. It's not because of their numbers. It's not because of their power that they're going to uh, displace these people who are on the land. It is because of God's righteousness and because of God's strength and because of God's power that they will win these battles. And he wants them to know that what is, what is transpiring is an act of his grace through, to Israel through the promises that he made beginning with Abraham and continuing on till today. That promise we find in Genesis 
chapter 12. In Genesis chapter 12, it says, The Lord said to Abram, he would later change his name to Abraham, Go from your land, your relatives, and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse anyone who treats you with contempt, and all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. God promised some 4,000 years ago that through this one seemingly insignificant man, he would bless all the people of the earth. How is that possible? How is it that through Abraham, all the peoples of the earth will be blessed? Well, we know the answer 4,000 years later. Actually, the answer came 2,000 years later when Jesus came as a descendant of Abraham and through Abraham, all the people of the earth can receive salvation and eternal life. This is ultimately how God fulfills this promise. But it begins with God's sovereign choice to, to, to put his favor upon Abraham and eventually the nation that descends from him, the people of Israel. And through this nation, he's going to display, he's going to extend his grace to the whole earth. People are going to know God through the people of Israel. People are going to experience what God is like. They're going to know his mercy and his grace, his kindness. They're going to know his justice and his righteousness. They're going to know his wrath against sin. All of these things, God's character who he is, is going to be revealed through Israel because he chose them. He chose them not because, of, not because they were better than other people. It almost seems as though he chose them because they weren't. They were less significant than everybody else around them. And through them, he chooses to make himself known. Galatians 4, if we jump to the New Testament, and Galatians 4 says in verse 4, when the time came to completion, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave but a son, and if a son, then God has made you an heir what does this mean? It means that that covenant that God made with Abraham eventually resulted in what's described here in, in Galatians 4, when the time came to completion, some translations say when the fullness of time had come, when all of the events of human history that God had been sovereignly orchestrating in order to lead to the moment of Jesus' birth, when all of that had been completed, God was never, not for one single moment in human history, inactive in, in bringing about his plan of salvation. He was, from the very beginning, working through human history to get to Galatians 4, when his son would come through Israel to 
extend to us adoption into his family. And that adoption, I love, I love this phrase when, when, when Paul says here in Galatians 4 that Paul, or I'm sorry, when Paul says that God sent his spirit into our hearts so that we cry out, Abba, Father. Abba, Father is a title given to God that occurs only a couple of places in the New Testament. Paul references that. He uses it in Romans chapter 8. He says the same thing, that the spirit within us cries out, Abba, Father. And the only other place that occurs in the New Testament is in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus is talking to his Father before going to the cross. If that's the name that Jesus uses for the Father in his most intimate moments, in his most vulnerable moments, the, the, the fact that the Spirit comes into us and enables us to call him Abba Father tells me we are fully adopted into his family. I have kids, and they call me dad, and they also have friends, and when their friends come over to our house, they don't call me dad. Why? Because they're not my kids. They're not part of our family. They're welcomed into our family and into our home for a period of time. While they are with us, we will treat them and we will protect them and we will regard them as an extension of our family, but they don't adopt the same name that my kids have for me. Galatians 4 is telling us that through the spirit that dwells in us, we call God by the same name that Jesus calls God. We have been fully adopted into his family. This happened because God chose Israel to be a conduit of his grace to the world. This is how he accomplishes this. This is, this is the people. That's why in, in Deuteronomy chapter 7, when, when we hear that the Lord has set his heart on them and chose them, not because they were numerous, but because he wanted to display his glory. He wanted to show what he could do through nobodies. He wanted to show what he could do through an insignificant man named Abram. It is for his glory. Because of what God did, not because of what Israel did. Because Israel, honestly, I mean, one of the things that's most convincing about the Old Testament is anytime, anytime any people group writes their own history, they always tell the good parts. They always tell like what they did well, right? Like they don't, they don't, they don't talk about, they don't just obsessively talk about how much they failed and how wicked they were. And yet that's what we have in the Old Testament. We, we have the self-revelation of the people of Israel, and none of it's good. They, they just fail time and time again, and yet through them, God extends his grace to the world. Through them, eventually comes the Son who will bring salvation. Through them, God redeems people from sin and death and brings them into his family, adopts them into his family, gives them his spirit through whom we cry out, Abba, 
Father. That's awesome. So, if that is God's plan, then it, it seems to go without saying how important it is that Israel take the commands of God seriously, right? And so the third thing you'll see on the handout is that God commands faithfulness for the good of his people and for the display of his glory. Why does why is God so why is he so concerned with how Israel responds to him? Because their faithfulness through their faithfulness the good of all the peoples of the earth and the display of his glory is at stake. He commands his people to be faithful because they are his plan. He, he has chosen through them to bless the nations. It says in verse 9, we're back in Deuteronomy 7, in verse 9 it says, Know that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God, who keeps his gracious covenant loyalty for a thousand generations with those who love him and keep his commands, but he directly pays back and destroys those who hate him. First of all, that has significant implications for his command to destroy the seven nations that we saw in the first couple of verses. Because he's saying here, I'm a God that when people, when my people obey me, my grace my grace response to that extends for generations. My, my blessing is disproportionate to the obedience of my people. A little obedience results in a lot of blessing. And so you would think that perhaps his judgment or his punishment is the same, but that would be, un, that would, that would be unjust. He says, I pay back directly and destroy those who hate me. So his, his blessing is disproportionate, but his justice is, is measured and proportionate. He does not judge beyond what is necessary or what is just. It says in verse 10, he will not hesitate to pay back directly the one who hates him. Verse 11, so keep the command, the statutes and ordinances that I am giving you to follow today. Israel, obey my commands. Deuteronomy is a strong plea from Moses to these people who are about to cross over the Jordan and take possession of the land that was promised to Abraham 400 years prior, and Moses is just crying out pleading with them to be faithful to him. Keep the command that I am giving you to follow today. Do you regard the commands of God as being that important in your life? Do you, do you understand that as a believer in Christ, you are part of God's plan to redeem the world. And your obedience or lack of obedience to his commands has direct implications on the success of that plan. 
We think if, if I fail to keep God's commands, it affects me. That's just our overly individualistic mindset that we have as part of our culture. We are, we are always concerned with what does this mean for me? We rarely stop and think, if I don't keep his commands, if I don't live a life that is totally sold out to Jesus Christ and his gospel, if I don't give my life daily to his service, we don't often stop and think about the impact or the ripple effect that that might have on other people. And for this reason, God commands faithfulness. It's for the good of his people and for the display of his glory. We are called to be his representatives. Why doesn't God, why didn't Jesus just stay on the earth? Why, why does God was revealing himself, God the Father, uh, revealing himself and making himself known to the earth through Jesus Christ incarnate 2,000 years ago? Why did Jesus leave? Wouldn't it be better for him to still be here? And the answer is no, it wouldn't be. His plan is for millions, perhaps one day billions of believers in Christ to reveal him to the world. His plan is you. His plan is us. He commands faithfulness for the good of his people and for the display of his glory. Moses gives three specific applications of this in the text, and I want to share them with you, and, and I, think, I think we can come up with some parallel applications as we do that. The first one, and you see this on the handout, is this. Do not marry them. When you come into the land and you, you, you take possession of this land and you conquer these people, first of all, one of the things that would have been extremely common in that day would be, okay, we've, we've conquered this people. Now the young men get to take their pick of the women and make them their wives. But Moses says in verse 3, you must not intermarry with them and you must not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons because they will turn your sons away from me to worship other gods. Then the Lord's anger will burn against you and he will swiftly destroy you. Marriage, Moses knows, is going to have an impact on their faithfulness to obey and to worship God. And we see many examples of this in the Old Testament of when they didn't keep this command, when they did marry those who worshiped other gods, they oftentimes, as a nation, were led astray, but at the very least, individuals were led astray. Solomon is a prime example. Solomon, who will become one of the greatest kings of Israel, eventually was led away from worship of God through the women, plural, that he married. And he began to worship and to serve their gods, which aren't gods at all, which are false gods. Today, who you marry has significant implications for your own spiritual life. Now, let me be very cautious here, because for those of us who are already married, our calling is to be faithful in whatever situation we find ourselves in today. 
The Bible is very clear on that. Paul speaks specifically about that in the New Testament. If you, in other words, if you are a believer married to an unbeliever, then stay married and be faithful and love God and love your spouse. But you will understand better than most the impact of being married to somebody who you are not on equal spiritual ground with. And this is the principle that Moses is saying to the people. And so to those of us who are not married, let me say who you choose to marry is extremely important. I know for me, when I was, when I was single and looking for a wife, the biggest priority that I had or the, the, the biggest thing that I wanted in a potential wife was I wanted a girl who she was going after Jesus with or without me. I'd gotten into some relationships with some girls that kind of tagged along. They were willing to go along. They were, and I think as a result, perhaps spiritually growing because they were with somebody who was pursuing Christ. Uh, but they were pursuing Christ because I was pursuing Christ and they were pursuing me. And I knew I wanted to be with a woman who, with or without me, she was gonna love the Lord and serve him for all of her life. That can be a hard thing to find. But I want to encourage those of you who are seeking a marriage partner to, to set that bar high, to go after somebody who's going after Christ. The impact, the, the effect of that is clear here in Deuteronomy 7, and it'll be the same in your life. So he says, do not marry them too. Moses says, do not worship their gods. Instead, this is what you are to do. Verse 5, I'm sorry, I didn't give you time to fill in the blanks. It's just do not worship their gods. Verse 5 says, Instead, this is what you are to do to them. Tear down their altars, smash their sacred pillars, cut down their Asherah poles, and burn their carved images. For you are a holy people, belonging to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be his own possession out of all the peoples on the face of the earth. We don't use this language but our, the culture around us has many gods, lowercase g. The culture around us has idols. We don't very often build a share of poles. Those were like things that images were carved into them and they would worship and offer sacrifices. We don't often create physical idols in the way that we see in the Old Testament, but make no mistake about it, we have many idols. We have a, an idol is anything that you give yourself to, anything that you, you seek to derive satisfaction or, or pleasure from in an unhealthy way, and our culture is full of those. We don't use the language of worship and gods, but make no mistake about it, that's exactly what is going on. I mean, this is the time of year when we see the people whose lives absolutely re revolve around the Pittsburgh Steelers reveal themselves. We see people whose, whose, whose lives just absolutely revolve around some sports team or, I don't know if you guys are gonna let me out of here after I say this, people whose lives revolve around hunting. These aren't bad things. Don't, don't misunderstand me. Those are things I enjoy. 
and do them and enjoy them. But when you sacrifice things that matter, like your family, and when you neglect your spouse or your children, you might have an idol. When those things take priority over being together with the body of believers, that could be an idol. Do not worship their gods. Those are the gods of our culture. If you're going to enjoy the Steelers, and I do, well, not this year, but if you're going to enjoy the Steelers, do it in a way that honors God. If you're going to hunt or fish or enjoy the outdoors, do it in a way that honors God. You have to know yourself, and you have to keep your heart in check and be honest with yourself. Third and finally, do not covet their silver or gold. All of this under the point of God commands faithfulness for the good of his people and for the display of his glory. Do not marry, do not worship their gods, and do not covet their silver or gold. Do not covet the things that the world enjoys that is forbidden amongst us. Don't covet it. Covet means to desire, to long for it, to want it. This, let me read the passage, verse 25. Burn up the carved images of their gods. Do not covet the silver and gold on the images and take it for yourself, or else you will be ensnared by it. So they're going to go and they're going to dispossess these people from the land, and they're going to, to go into these now vacated cities, and they're going to see images made of silver and gold, and their hearts are going to say, my goodness, wouldn't I, look at this gold, look at this silver. He says, don't covet the silver and gold on the images and take it for yourself, or else you will be ensnared by it. For it is detestable to the Lord your God. Do not bring any detestable thing into your house, or you will be set apart for destruction like it. You are to abhor and detest it utterly because it is set apart for destruction. How many things that our culture values do we allow our hearts to long for? Oh, I want to be more like the world. Oh, I want to, I want to have the things that they have. I want to have all these shiny new things, all these fancy things. I want to enjoy the wealth of this world. And your heart becomes ensnared. And you find it difficult to serve the Lord because you're in love with the things of the world. Moses is warning them, look, you guys have been living in the desert. It's all you've ever known. You're going to go in there and you're going to see these things and your eyes are going to be wide open and you're going to say, my goodness, look, look what I can have. And your heart will become ensnared. God commands faithfulness for the good of his people and for the display of his glory. May we take heed. May we learn from these warnings that Moses gave to the people. May we apply them to our lives. May we understand that we are to be set apart, that we are to be God's possession, that we are his people, chosen by his grace, not because of what we have to offer, but because of his sovereign love, because he wanted to, to display his glory and his goodness to the world through us.
For that reason, he commands our faithfulness.